we're t- we're talking. Hello. Yeah, hey, hello, hello, Natalie Kang. We're we're talking about egg rolls and sweet tea. Your new cookbook here, um, subtitled Asian Inspired Southern Style. And I previously told you that I really like this a lot, the cookbook. And uh, you asked why, and some of the reasons are um, that it's, you could tell that you yourself are an experienced cook. So there's that kind of uh, truthful expertise involved in the, the recipes. And secondly, your background is so interesting, and it's influenced the voice you have in this book, which tells you just about anything is possible uh, with your imagination and good technique. Um, well, let, let, for, let's, let's also do this. Let's, let's compliment our guest on her imagination and also her tolerance for the fact that we, we had just a minor problem with the sound recording equipment, and I had scrambled to get it back again. So thank you for your patience for that. Well. Yes, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, y'all. Yeah, well, anyhow, so we're talking about egg rolls and sweet tea, which really is a fusion. Of, um, it was built to me as um, a, a, a combination of Asian and southern U.S., but it's actually more than that, isn't it? Well, like yourselves, I love to travel as well, and I think that's a wonderful way through travel is to not only meet the people um, through their local food traditions, the night markets. I love eating the street food, and I think it's just a perfect gateway to the culture and history of an area. Right. Um, it's a little complicated here, but can you briefly describe just your background so that our listeners can get a general idea of the variety of experience that that you bring to this and and influence. Sure. Well, I was born and raised in Smyrna, Georgia. So um, I have fond memories, very joyful memories of long summer days um, as a child, you know, just playing in the backyard for hours on end, sucking on nectar from the honeysuckles. I remember my dad buying the two-by-fours to build the muscadine vines, so when I played hide-and-seek, I'd be going weaving in and out of the the vines and being distracted by the grapes. I would always be found first. Um, I also remember going to county fairs and fishing off the dock at Lake Alatoona. And so it's really in this backdrop of kind of navigating this socio-cultural mashup of, you know, a combination of inclusion, rejection, kind of overlays, these intersections that, you know, I had to learn kind of what it was to be, uh, you know, Southern and Asian, American, female, four foot eleven. And your parents came over. (laughs) Your parents came over on on um, for graduate studies, right? Yes, they came over from Taiwan, and they were actually first-generation Americans. They spent their adult lives in the South. So we had a nice balance of kind of the Asian and Southern cultures, and that was reflected in just their their love for everything Southern um, and American. They loved the sports, loved the weather. We spent a lot of time outdoors. We loved all the fresh vegetables that were local and seasonal. And so you get a sense of that kind of nuanced into our dinner table. 
because we no, just really still... loved the southern lifestyle too. Um, no, are they are they still in Taiwan? No, in they are not. They spent their adult lives here, and they oh, ended okay. up staying over here, right? So okay. they came over here early uh, in the 60s um, where they were just young graduate students as well. Now, you've had a lot of other experiences, not just in the culinary scene. Could you just give us a brief rundown on some of those? Sure. Well, I, you know, I grew up here, and then um, it was um, wonderful and joyful in childhood, and then you wonder what else is out there, right? So I actually, I left the South, and I had the opportunity to go up north and spend some time in New England and go to Vassar College, and it was there where my eyes were open to not only lots of new friends from different places around the world, different ethnic backgrounds. I was first introduced to things like hummus, you know, and sushi. Yeah, right. And, mm-hmm, and ratatouille even. <laughs> so it was, um, it was a wonderful introduction to not only, you know, different backgrounds and cultures and religions, um, but different kinds of dietary preferences too. So, um that was kind of my first discovery. And then after that, I, I ended up going to Harvard Kennedy School because um, I wanted to find a way to kind of bring folks together in collaboration across different sectors. And I realized that the power of food was quite magical. You know, I had experienced it um, as a young adult. And then I realized that as I was hosting parties and then people would just, you know, come around the dinner table and then they would start asking me about ingredients that I was using or I would go to the local supermarket. It would be kind of Asian international and folks would stop me in the aisle and ask me about how to use this and that and how to shop for a walk. And so I realized that it was more than just a a meal. And I realized that it was a way that um, I could kind of leverage my background in public policy, and I also have leadership development training, that that was something that was powerful in team building and impactful. And while I worked in the corporate sector and we would do lots of strategic planning, it was clear to me that really the barriers came down when we were around food. And so for the potlucks that I hosted, that was really where a lot of the productivity and connections came about. And so I saw that it was a very good gateway for developing our own confidence um, and leadership around food and culture. And that's how it led to me working for and then now starting a quirky little business around bringing people together around food and breaking down barriers and breaking down stereotypes and seeing how we can kind of develop and um, kind of stimulate our own curiosity around food and then use it as a way to make our not only our own lives more enriched but also how we can bring that to our organizations and companies. Well, you always read about that, but you you prove that, that it's probably 
a fact, <laughs> not just a myth about the, the whole culinary scene. I love how you call yourself the uh, CEO, Chief Eating Officer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I saw just firsthand, you know, I was leading these, whether it was for a community college or for a boardroom, you know, at a leadership summit, I saw how these interactive team building events, you know, just making dumplings together, making animals together, was not only super fun, but was insightful and inspiring. Um, it would be a way to interact with folks that were different from us. Um, and it was just an amazing way to kind of connect with each other. And sometimes it would be developing a new friendship, and other times it would be let's collaborate on this new community project, you know. And other times it might be, you know, working on the same team together towards something that would transform the company. So you, you also are known as the sauce maven, and you have a, <laughs> a, a small company that makes nothing but sauces. Tell our listeners of course. about that. <laughs> sauce makes the world go round, right? It makes everything better. Well, I had the best <laughs> job in the world, right? Um, I'm the sauce maven, and I'm cooking up a better world through the work that I do, um, helping people just have fun and, and break down barriers. So the sauce is really uh, – came about quite organically. I kind of opened up my refrigerator and I would see a, an entire shelf full of sauce bottles, right? But I realized that none of them captured the flavors of my childhood, you know, the, the juicy peaches, the, the honeysuckle nectar, the flavors of Vidalia sweet onion and the fresh tomato wedges, you know, marinated in the sugar vinegar brine that my popo grandmother would make. So I kind of just let my taste buds um, take the lead and tried to fill that gap. And that's how I came up with some of my favorite flavor combinations, the sweet chili peach um, and the uh, soy ginger Vidalia is inspired by uh, my grandmother's uh, original stir fry sauce. And then we have an Asian barbecue teriyaki, which is a family favorite that livens up almost everything, including chicken. Now, was it, your, was it your father or grandfather who bicycled over to you and gave you peanut soup? <laughs> right. He discovered our, a crock pot, and after that, he was just loving making the uh, boiled peanuts and adding his own creativity. I mean, I think that was part of it as well, is that the whole spirit of kind of curiosity and creativity, I mean, it's really the essence of being American. And then you add in there kind of the Southern and Asian food traditions, and you find a lot of commonality and it's, it's quite Yeah, inspiring. I was going to ask, why is it, because I told you before that we've interviewed a number of people who have um, fused Asian backgrounds and cultures with Southern cooking. What is the commonality there? Well, I think a, a lot of it is around connection to the land and to fresh ingredients, right? I mean, it's it's connecting to the farm and where we get our food. So I think as I kind of had my journey, you know, from the South and then went to New England and then through my travels. I mean, when you listen to folks and you see them, whether out in the fields or in the markets, you realize that we have more in common um, through a lot of the foods that travel around the world. You know, for example, um, you know, you might be surprised like on my Asian market tour to see black eyed peas in the Vietnamese desserts, you know, with mm -hmm. the coconut milk. Well, black-eyed peas are actually native to South Asian countries, you know, in Malaysia and 
that area. And so that's something that we often think of as southern, but it actually has Asian origins, right? And then something like sesame, we often think of though the sesame oil, the roasted sesame oil is prominent in a lot of um, some of the East Asian cooking. But actually, you know, there were food ways from Africa where um, yeah, like it was brought over the Benny seed. Look yes, okra. and okra as well, right? That yeah. ties us. Um, so I think as we become more familiar with the foodways and the history and the origins of certain foods and dishes, we discover more commonality. And it's really inspiring to me to see that because, you know, when I think we are inspired and um, become more joyful when we realize that we have more in common than differences. And it helps us get through some of the tough times now, the, it would really be amiss, remiss if we didn't mention the photography in this book. It's spectacular. It's very, very um, restrained as well. How did you land on this photographer? <laughs> well, Deborah was wonderful. I felt very lucky to be able to work with her. She was recommended, uh, a local recommendation. So we're, we're both local girls. And we worked very well together because she was able to meet me where I was. I mean, obviously, my the food and the, the dishes don't always fit into one genre. And that's the other part of it is that I hope that folks can um, enjoy the stories and try the different dishes. I, I included a different a range of levels, right, and entry points. Some of them are quite simple with just a couple of steps, and other ones are a little bit more traditional. Go on for pages, some of them. Right, go on for a little bit longer, but um, but I think it, it kind of meets people where they are, right, what you would like to do. So she was great in being flexible in that way because I hope that the – the home cooks and others who enjoy the recipes in the books will make it to their own authentic and add their own creative twist. That's what it's about, right, is kind of um, building upon the, the legacy, mostly women who were in the kitchen making these creations that didn't have access to all the social media. They probably didn't realize it would ever kind of be posted and shared, but I think that's part of the, the tribute um, and the spirit of the book is kind of an homage to everyone that came before me, but also the, you know, the women who are trailblazers now. I can't wait to use this, uh, um, the leak made into a, <laughs> a soft oh, brush. The brush? I just, I'd love it. <laughs> if you use a leak, you'll get an extra large brush. If you yeah. use the, the smaller green onions, you'll get a more a more refined brush. So you can actually have different sizes or different needs. It's kind of uh-huh. fun that way. It now, adds have, to your party. We had a, 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 I had a cousin uh, who was married to a, a Cuban uh, who, what did he use to make the, he did the whole roast pig, and what did he make his brushes out of? It was it was it was similar to leak. It wasn't leaks, but it was something somewhat similar to that. Yeah, I don't remember what it was though. But he made all his brushes out of food and and used that in, in the uh, pig roast. I wish I could remember. That's what why it was. I love potlucks and dinner parties because you get introduced to not only a wonderful array of dishes, but also the people and their stories and their creativity. And yeah, I think people it. just tend to, you know, all the 
a lot of the pretensions seem to go down when people gather around food. Though I'm not sure you want to get in the middle of a a, a barbecue debate of which barbecue sauce in the <laughs> style the is south. the best. That not can get kind south, of intense. Sure. <laughs> well, you also lucked out. Yeah. You lucked out on the apparent pool because your your father and mother and grandparents were exceptional, very fascinating yeah, people. Were. Yeah, I was very fortunate. I mean, I think they definitely had the entrepreneurial spirit. They were kind of trailblazers in their own right, and both my parents were professionals. I mean, my mother was a public schools teacher. She would teach uh, ping pong physics, right? She would she would kind of apply different um, Eastern Western fusion uh, learnings to her. And classes. you said she was a sports person. I, I love that yeah, story. She, she was huge into sports so she would try to use geometry and dodgeball and all of that four square and <laughs> mash it up together and I think we always had students and kids in our driveway and my dad was the same way I mean he was a uh, entrepreneur rocket science he had several retail shops and kind of brought that to his uh, love of experimenting and tinkering with the perfect recipe for sweet tea sweet iced tea or for boiled peanuts yeah, so tell, tell us this. Oh, uh, Peter, remember we interviewed the guy in um, Charleston, was it Charleston, South Carolina? Uh, it was, was boiled peanuts. Boiled peanuts, yeah. He, he, would, um, he sang a song about get your boiled peanuts here, <laughs> and we recorded him. It's in the archives somewhere. It was wonderful. <laughs> I'd love to listen to that. Yeah, it was, I, mean, I think was, all I can yeah. sing is the the on top of a little smoky, per, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'll cover with cheese. No, no. So we have meatballs. We have a meatballs recipe and a, a spaghetti recipe in there. Yeah, I saw this big. No, how did this the spaghetti thing? Your mother invented it, and then you refined it. How did that come about? Well, again, it was really because, you know, both my parents worked full-time, so dinner time was sometimes just whatever you had in the fridge or what was local from the Winn-Dixie, right? So you have a box of pasta. You know, it's not going to be any special Asian-style pasta. It's just uh, spaghetti, uh-huh. and it's a comfort food, right? For, for yeah, but there's always been this debate about whether the <laughs> Chinese or the uh, who else invented the Italians, Italians who invented spaghetti. Well, all I'll say is that they recently earthed up a 4,000-year-old bowl of pasta, what looked like pasta, in uh, a remote part of China. So uh-huh. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, be I another, remember that. I that'll remember be another reading podcast. about that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also very different. I mean, the... the um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of like pizza. You know, there's so many differences. Isn't that the story? I don't know what you're saying, Rabbit. Marco Polo didn't 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 well, that was, the rest that was the big debate. From, mm-hmm. He sailed from Venice, mm-hmm. yeah, but I think he I think he determined that it was the Chinese invented the the um, spaghetti. Now let's, let's and then we just we make it our own, right? <laughs> we, we can't leave this book without the black chicken. Oh, he's in love with this black chicken. Tell us about the black chicken. I've never, I've never seen a black chicken before. Well, it is naturally black. The skin is naturally black, and it's very small, actually. I mean, it, it almost fits in the palm of your hand because it's just uh-huh. kind of a wild, um, not 
you know, not really uh, commercially bred kind of chicken. And so, um, you know, in our household, we, we actually like to keep things on the bone. And, uh, yeah, I learned to kind of tease the little bones from whole fish and from whole chicken. We always prefer the dark meat. So, and now we've learned that it's healthier for you, right, the, the bone and the nutrients around the soups. So that's kind of the, the uh, inspiration for that is it's one of those chickens that, like I said, is not really, uh, hasn't been bred so many times and ways that it's retained a lot of its natural flavors. And so you make a chicken soup from that. I mean, chicken soup is like the ultimate expression of, of love and dedication because it takes so long if you want to make it from scratch, right, the bone broth. Well, I make so it, that's I make, kind of an homage to folks who like the chicken I soup. From, I make it from no, I make my own version from 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 scratch. Not, not that's the, wonderful. The bone broth. The the rest the recipe isn't nearly as, as many pages as yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, it actually it's funny because it seems longer. It's definitely for a day when you know maybe a rainy day when. Um, you want to make something that nurtures yourself or a sick friend, but the extra step of, you know, the aromatics and the flavors of the, the broth, in addition to making the chicken separately, adds that extra dimension. Um, you can always take some shortcuts and not have to do both steps, but kind of the double step does make it kind of a creation of love and time, right, as you know. Right. As you know, of making bone well, broth. Well, well here, here in the northeastern United States and in other parts of the globe as well, I guess, chicken soup is known as Jewish pop... Penicillin. Penicillin. Mm, yeah. Yes, it's very but, healing and nurturing, especially for those long winters. One thing I noticed, and it wasn't even the least bit critical, it's not intended to be... An ob- it's intended to be an observation, not a criticism, I can assure you, since I would not put my cooking up against yours. But we did, dis- we did discover a recipe in a Middle Eastern cookbook that had as the main spice ingredient turmeric. Mm-hmm. And I was, looking for, I was looking for turmeric in your recipe, and it wasn't there. <laughs> well, actually, have uh, some of the turmeric... Um, in the uh, cauliflower rice. Uh-huh. I, was, I was observing only that it wasn't in the chicken soup. No, not, that's something that is a Yemeni nice creative Yemeni touch. Chicken soup, right? was Yemeni that's a chicken nice creative soup. touch. I, I have to think of that next time. You can yeah. add it. It's very helpful. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing yeah. that distinguishes um, these recipes that, that you put together is they're so visually um, perfect. I mean, I'm looking at this preppy pink and green handmade <laughs> dumpling wrappers. They're gorgeous. That one's fun to look at and to make. Uh-huh. I, how I do you get the colors? Because I had extra, excuse me? How do you make the, I mean, what is this color secret? It's really, it's natural. It's just from the, the greens or from the beets. I had extra beets because I was um, a farm shareholder. So we had lots of extra root vegetables and greens, and I was trying to figure out what to do with all the beets that I had. 
Yeah, and, I've always thought of dyeing Easter eggs with beet juice. Um, yeah, and yeah, do it an all-natural one. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Something you talk about in your book that I, I really welcomed this information. I, I mean, I knew rice was widespread culturally, but I had no idea how many varieties there are. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amazing. Tell, tell our listeners about what you discovered in your and printed in your chapter called Wild About Rice. <laughs> I actually have a whole class about that. It's it's very fun to do because it kind of opens our eyes and our mouths to the varieties of rice and the foodways that brought them and exchanged them in different areas. But, you know, there's the the black rice and then there's different varieties of black rice. Um, there's the were ones that are rich in South Asia and in East Asia and then coming from India. And then even in the U.S., you have the Carolina gold rice. So the tradition of rice is is quite universal. Um, Obviously, it requires um, specific environmental uh, agricultural conditions to grow. And because of my interest in public policy, I, I learned about sustainable rice cultivation as well. So that's definitely... Um, front and center now because of its connection to the environment and climate um, to figure out ways that we can continue these heritage rice uh, varieties. So the red rice, you know, from the Bhutanese um, areas and also the the brown rice, of course, we have lots of that. Wild rice is out um, near the Great Lakes region. Actually, is yeah. it a rice, right? Is a, it's a grass. No, it's not. It's so not I think just... You know, discovering all these varieties uh, opens up not only our kind of awareness of the foodways, but also they make for amazing different dishes from uh, a arboreal rice that you might want to use for something creamier to a rice salad where you want to have something maybe a little crunchier or nuttier, and then obviously the different um, healthful varieties for whole grain. Now, you you did a stint trying to be a vegetarian, but that didn't work out so well, did it? (laughs) (laughs) It actually was um, eye-opening in many ways um, because I was introduced to it through the farm share. And so I had wonderful vegetables to kind of make up for the the absence of meat. But it was also learning about the impact of, of meat production. So... Again, it was just the the intersections and connections between what we eat and where it comes from was fascinating to me, and it kind of pulled me more into the direction of the public policy and and community work. Um, So it it was hard coming home because meat was something that we enjoyed, um, whole whole meat with bone. And also uh, my mother was, you know, cooking my favorite dishes and it Uh had meat. And so I ended up um, kind of being inspired by the sauces and the flavors and transforming some of my favorite dishes into vegetarian dishes. It was not always, you know, one-to-one, but I was able to, you know, for example, like chili, right? I love chili, and I love chili cook-offs. And so I adapted that and created a vegetarian. And then stir-fries obviously can be amazing with fresh vegetables, and you don't miss the meat at all. Um, and now there's different substitutes for that flavor and texture, like tempeh and 
the impossible and the beyonds, and I included a recipe on that as well. So it kind of similar to going out of your comfort zone, you know, trying something new like eating a different diet forced me to not only learn about where food comes from and the preparation, but also kind of out of my comfort zone to be creative. And I think, again, that's another area where um, if you are, you know, able to go out of your comfort zone and you're able to develop the confidence around trying something new, it also relates to, you know, our own lives around our own sense of self-esteem and confidence and the willingness to try different things and being open to different cultures. You know, I'm, as I go through your recipes, I'm always surprised at what you might term a secret ingredient. Um, like you, you probably have created um, the one Brussels sprouts recipe that Brussels sprouts haters would love. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did test it out on on many different um, palettes, uh, young and old, and it seemed like that combination of kind of the sweet and sour glaze, right, of the balsamic and the cinnamon actually is a, a really nice, subtle dimension to bring See, out the, the I think sweetness. That, that a lot of people don't understand cinnamon. Um, they too many people associated with dessert because of mm-hmm. having it in, in sugar. But if you talk to people in um, in areas where they have heavy use of cinnamon, um, it, it, I mean, I like a, a pinch of cinnamon in an olive oil and vinegar dressing because it sharpens it up. There's a tart sharpening to it. There's nothing sweet exactly. about it. Yeah. Exactly. It really enhances and highlights. And you're right. It, around the rest of the world, it's actually an aromatic used in many savory dishes, especially meat dishes, to kind of take the edge off of some of the gaminess. Right, yeah. And they so. find it odd when I'm in those areas of the world, or those cultures, they find it odd when I'm, you know, I love cinnamon rolls. And they're like, ooh, you know, it's kind of like... <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what are you doing to that? You're adding. You know, <laughs> I agree with you. Crossing, <laughs> right, right. It's like you're eating an entire mouthful of an aromatic that we just kind of use for our duckling, you know. So, yeah, it's 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 really fun to discover those things, and I love having the conversations because it just seems to again kind of you know bring down our. Um, our fears, and um, we are excited about hearing the what we have in common or something that we share that's a favorite dish or comfort food. And instantly, you know, I love seeing how breaking bread or, or egg rolls, you know, kind of opens up people and opens gateways to friendship and motivating people actually to give back then because they're oftentimes connected more to the community or the farms around them. Well, they say that. I mean, I think we need a lot more of that in today's world. (laughs) I agree. And what you are doing, right, what you're doing through providing the opportunity for folks to share and to connect, I think is is a wonderful, beautiful thing. So thank you for what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You're a connector. Time has come. You have to share the stories and and. The, the whole concept of your dad's Chinesey surprise dirt beans. <laughs> <laughs> you mean the magic ingredients? 
or the secret. Well, yeah. What? Why would they so wonderful? Well, I think it's it's really the ultimate, and you know, the the bull peanut is something that was just a favorite kind of roadside snack for us. I mean, we couldn't drive yeah. anything anywhere down in in Georgia and through to. Um, the coast without stopping by a peach stand with little peanuts. So my father, the the ever kind of chemist and research scientist, he would kind of bring that spirit and then his creativity to making the boil peanuts. And in Chinese and Mandarin, um, it translates directly into dirt beans. <laughs> so that's how <laughs> it's it's like that. called mud beans, right? Like yeah, mud right. mud nuts. Actually, yeah, mud nuts, <laughs> and so that's really the the origin of that. And so he just, and again, it was something that was just his fun uh, invention. It wasn't really, you know, something that was intentional. It was like the dishes my mom made around, you know, hot Hunan catfish or five spice rutabaga. It was just absorbing and enjoying our surroundings and the food, and that was supper. Yeah, well, listeners, you're going to find a lot of surprises in this cookbook. I've never, ever seen anything like black-eyed pea hummus. <laughs> that was inspired by my, my Vassar yeah. College classmates, which, you know, they brought in a lot of their favorite uh, uh-huh. study food, right? Study food, and that would be keeping That's us study up food. for yeah, study groups, that. right? Like, all right, let's 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 bring out some hummus and... Sometimes it would be not matzo bread and other other leftovers too. And of course, then you have seedy pigs in a blanket with wasabi mustard. That's pretty funny. And wasabi mm-hmm. deviled eggs is another one. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, it was just something that you know we we enjoyed so much at the different uh, dinner parties or other neighbors' houses that we went to. And it's not something you find at a lot of uh, Asian restaurants, right, on the menu. No. Asian restaurants. So, but it just became a, a favorite, a big family hit. And being able to add something a little spicy in addition to the, the white pepper, the wasabi, which is the horseradish flavor, added uh, a nice little peppery taste balance to the mayonnaise base. So you you have a lot of information and recipes for an assortment of of, um, noodles, um, and that's the ultimate comfort food, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and you you go, you trot around to different companies, and what is this um, Jap Chai? inspired glass noodles with Swiss chard. Where all did you touch down for that one? <laughs> that was when I had a chance to go to Seoul, Korea, Jop Chai. And also I was introduced to that when I was up north uh, to Korean food and the banchan and all the wonderful... I love it, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm, all the little side dishes. Yeah. So that was an adaptation also when I was a farm shareholder and I had a lot of fresh chard and greens. And also there weren't all the, the large international Asian supermarkets in that area. So I was able to get my hands on something that I was familiar with, the mung bean noodles. Uh-huh. And uh, the original dish often uses sweet potato noodles, which are a little bit thicker and chewier. But the mung bean noodles are uh, a good substitute. They're a little bit um, skinnier. But you still get the same 
chewy, light dish, you know, because you can eat it uh, cold or at room temperature. And it isn't as heavy because it's not made from the semolina flour pasta. You have um, moon over wasabi. I love that one, too. (laughs) That was very simple. It was... It's for those late nights or busy days where you kind of need a a pick-me-up indulgence of a whole avocado. And I just stand there. Like I I wrote in the book, I just stand there and and I have my spoon in hand and I just drizzle the sauce on and I just eat it, scoop it straight from the avocado. Yeah. Um, Yeah, my my trainer tells me that for breakfast she she just mushes – (laughs) <laughs> mushes is the term use an avocado. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I, I don't know how many people you're going to get to try spicy pig ear salad. Um, I mean, I think pig ears are kind of overrated, to tell you the truth. But <laughs> I don't mind to, to talk about that. Um, something that's also unusual in your book is you, you, with the Asian background of a lot of this, you you never think of desserts, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and yeah, and um, you have desserts, but they're probably like not very sweet, right? Mm-hmm. That's why I call them semi sweets, okay. and many of them are fruit fruit based. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Well, I mean, there's something for everybody to like here. You you have a lot of basics, um, sauces and stuff. Are these your sauces that you give the recipes for? Yes, those are the the base. Mm-hmm. They're the, the the base for your your little company. Right, right, right. So those are never before revealed, right? Sauces that I painstakingly developed in my own kitchen. So never before published. Asian inspired okay. sauce blends. So uh, they are the basis for my Sauce Maven recipe in a bottle sauce line. Well, the other show stopper or eye catcher, whatever what I call it is I couldn't take my eyes off of the photo of your candied t- tomato bites. <laughs> what do they taste like? I couldn't picture what they tasted like. They're fun and lovely and crunchy. So they're beautiful to look at and they're really tasty to eat because it's like a little mini gem bursting in your mouth. It's got a little crunchy glaze. It's kind of like... Um, well, candy apples are different because they're firm. So yes. when you have little tomato bites, they're more delicate, and they just burst in your mouth after you bite through the crisp glaze. And okay. that one actually has is in the street markets, right, in the night market in oh, Taiwan. Really? And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Happy times. Good to My try. mom actually grew up loving those as a little girl. They would kind of walk around and and they would sell them. They would be so pretty that the kids would all be attracted. Yeah, they are pretty. They're really mm-hmm. pretty. Attracted <laughs> to the, the red color and the parents were happy because it was fruit. It was a vegetable. <laughs> like pizza. <laughs> it's good for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Natalie Kang, for talking to us um, about your book, Egg Rolls and Sweet Tea and um, I think you'll find it, listeners, to be eye-opening and um, a lot of good messages in here. Uh, and you should be congratulated for your messaging as well, Natalie King. And, uh, well, again, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Oh, uh, and well, if they want more too. information or want to 
enjoy my sauces or um, follow me. I love the exchange of folks sharing what they're doing uh, with the different recipes. You can get a copy of the book. We have actually a promotion going on on globalhearth.com. And yeah, no, it's a that, gift take one, note of that, listeners. It's Global yeah. Health. Hearth. Mm-hmm. And you can also find me at The Sauce Maven online on Instagram and social Maven. media. The Sauce Maven might be easier to remember. And we have a promotion going on now which supports my cookbook collective and it supports fellow women authors and oh, local yeah. and food and health initiatives. So online purchases go to supporting different groups and charities. That's great. Well, you're doing good, and uh, I, I wish you continued success and, and more books. <laughs> Thank you so much, and I hope that Thank you'll look you. me up when you come to Atlanta, when you come down south. Right. I'm happy to host you. Yeah. One thing I wish you'd do some consulting on that I find the most annoying thing about Atlanta is wherever you are, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> We'll have to change that. Come with me. We'll go explore Buford <laughs> Highway and all the eateries there. I'll give it's you so a tour. hard to get around. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> I don't know why it, it, it is hard to get around, but I'm always in the wrong place <laughs> trying to get somewhere. Well, as long as you have the good friends around, you have my yeah. you have my phone number. You just have to I give do. your friends a holler, and I'll come in and rescue you, <laughs> from, the, you. from the crazy airport. <laughs> <laughs> Natalie Kang, thank you again, and the continued success. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Yes, we're talking to Maureen Nakaido, is it, Maureen, um, of Mocha Chocolate. Um, What does Moku mean? I have a feeling it must mean something. Well, it turns out it means island in Hawaiian, and it means tree in Japanese. But the Ah. truth behind the name is that I was given the great advice to keep it short and sweet, two syllables or less. And so I started with my nickname, which is Mo, and I just started adding on (laughs) syllables until I found one that I liked. I liked the sound of Moku. Uh, I made sure it didn't mean anything bad. And um, yeah, so that's the story. (laughs) That's great. Now, which, which are you, Japanese or Hawaiian? My husband is Japanese. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you have. I have uh, something with your picture on it in front of me, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. So that yeah. was a giveaway, huh? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> You're holding <laughs> up a, 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 a yeah, an award um, yes. in this photograph. So. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, you've won many, many awards. Um, tell us a little bit about how did you get into this business it's uh, the chocolate industry is is a very competitive market mm-hmm. and i find well chocolate making is difficult i i had to write a, a, 
a chef's cookbook, and and I had the most trouble with their um, pastry chef uh, and his discussion of all the things you had to do with chocolate. They kind of lost me with the chocolate. <laughs> yes, chocolate is tricky, and it you is. know there have been times I've said, you know, chocolate is going to break me, and um, and I'll feel like giving up, but then I keep you know, getting better, but it, it is tricky. Everything can be going smoothly, and then one day you get funny marks on your chocolate, and you swear you've done the same thing that you did the last <laughs> time. But, um, yeah, so I cut into it. I had gone to Nicaragua. I had been sponsoring a little girl for a number of years, and I had the opportunity to go and meet her uh, when she was 14, and spent time with her, but also while we were there, we were in Granada, and we wandered into this little building, and it turns out it was a chocolate museum, and that was the first time I ever learned where chocolate comes from, that it's a fruit that goes on a tree, grows on a tree. That blew my mind, Um, (laughs) you know, that it it grows 20 degrees north and south of the equator, Um, the deep, deep cultural history of it. And what really got me was learning about the people who grow it, that mostly these are smallholder farmers. Uh, Maybe this is a secondary crop. They've got a few acres. And that many are living in poverty. And I, you know, was interested in the people of Nicaragua from sponsoring this girl. And so that's the part that really moved me, and I left there thinking, I wonder if there's something I could do with chocolate that might be helpful, but I had no idea uh, what that would be. And eventually, I started researching it, and I learned that there's this whole craft chocolate community, um, ordinary people making chocolate from scratch, and that they care about a lot of those same things that I cared about, you know, the environment, social equity, um, kind of shining the light on the people growing the chocolate. And that's what really attracted me to it, and that's how I started messing around with it, and then it has grown from there. Now, did you have a real job before that? (laughs) Yes, I did. I did. I had a real full-time job. Um, So I started uh, uh, playing with chocolate right before the pandemic, uh, like a few months before. And then we all got sent home. And so then I had a little more flexibility for playing with chocolate. And um, eventually I could see it was the fall of 2021 and I was going to be going back into the office, and I could see that it was going to be difficult to do both. I thought I, if I had the opportunity, I might be able to grow this chocolate business. And so I took a little leap of faith, and I left my job. And um, I'm, it's exciting. I never, ever thought I would be, you know, having my own business and making chocolate at that. But... I'm just really enjoying, you know, following this path, see where life takes me and where chocolate takes me. Wow. So, but you, you, you've moved very quickly in developing this company than if you didn't start until the pandemic. 
Yeah, I guess so. I mean, yeah, it it has, in some ways it feels slow because like I learned about chocolate and wanted to do something and I mulled on that for years but didn't do anything with it, never talked about it. And then once I started making chocolate, I had a great opportunity to take this class because um, Portland is a real foodie town and they have a semester-long oh, class yeah, called Getting Your Product or Getting Your Recipe to Market. So it was all um, makers like myself, but people who made salsa or jams or you know CBD drinks or whatever, and went over everything, food safety, um, you know, costing your product, scaling up, all that stuff. So I had that opportunity. And I think that kind of pushed me along because actually – my goal when I started, I thought this will be a nice side gig and I'll do farmer's markets and like holiday markets. Uh-huh. Well, when the pandemic hit, both those things were off the table. We certainly weren't going to spend time indoors at holiday markets. So I had to reassess. Because I was in this class, I had a great business advisor and she kind of pushed me to reconsider uh, getting into stores and to talk with one of our local, we have a, a market of choice, which is a, uh, they have 11 stores in Oregon, and um, they like to feature local makers, and I got in with them, and that is kind of what started the, bowl, the ball rolling, actually. Wow. Um, and, and at the same time, I had just on a whim I had entered um, a contest, uh, the International Chocolate Awards. I entered my goat milk. And at the time, I didn't even have – I did. And I don't know why I did. It was kind of (laughs) crazy because I didn't even have, you know, wrappers at the time. But I had kind of experimented with this goat milk chocolate, and I thought it was really unusual – and I noticed other makers had, you know, these award stickers on their bars. And so I looked into that, and I just thought, oh, what the heck. And, um, and I won, and it was so crazy. Um, and then I got my wrappers, I got Market of Choice, and I won that award, like, all within a week. And it has kind of felt like it's just grown from there. So fun. Well, I mean, the product is really good. I mean, let's face that. Thank you. I mean, that's number one. You know, how you manage mm. to get a product that good that quickly, I have no idea. Yeah, a number, mm. of, things, a number of things most struck me about, about your chocolate. It, it, it seemed somehow softer than a lot of the chocolates that I've eaten, which I eat mm. quite, quite a lot thanks to the people like yourself. <laughs> Who want, want to be on our program and bribe us with chocolate bars? Right. But but I, I thought right. some some of the ones I get they're, they're crunchy until you suck them for a long time and then they give up. Ah. Uh huh. But but, uh-huh. but the one of them I can't I can't remember if it was the dark milk one or one of mm-hmm. the dark ones. It's it's. I it's, bet uh, it was the the dark milk, you know, because. Um, there's a good amount of cocoa butter in that one. And okay. when I started making chocolate, I realized that the texture was really important as well as the taste, that the texture was a way to deliver 
the taste. So I'm always aiming to get something that's really smooth. Um, yeah, I mean, you have to really... coat your tongue with chocolate. I mean, that's right. part of the whole, yeah. Well, the interesting thing is I, I had never heard of a category of chocolate called dark chocolate. And it, se- it seems, if I can explain it to our listeners, <laughs> the difference between dark chocolate and dark milk chocolate is, guess what, the milk. That's no, exactly right. <laughs> what, what are you saying, Sonia? I I don't know what, how you can say you never heard of dark chocolate. That's all, basically all we eat. <laughs> or dark dark milk chocolate. A lot of dark times. milk chocolate. Mm-hmm. Listen to mm-hmm. what I'm saying. Dark milk. Yeah, yeah, that does that does throw a lot of people because they think it's either milk chocolate or it's dark chocolate. Yeah, that's what I call it. Dark too. milk. And but Peter's right. It's it's the milk. So it's basically it's dark chocolate. It has the high cacao percentage, but it's got the milk. So probably a run of the mill chocolate bar milk chocolate is probably thirty to forty percent um, cacao. Uh, but the dark milk chocolate, you know, fifty, sixty, and on even. So you get yeah. the seventy. Is, so you where get is, the, where the softness. Where does the softness come from? I think it's a combination of the milk and the cocoa butter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, yeah. Then, 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 now then, just to, just to make sure that we cover every continent, you have one <laughs> of your chocolates that comes from Africa. So, so Madagascar. Mm-hmm. We call it, and, and that's got orange zest in it. <laughs> what, what, what do you do? You sit up nights <laughs> thinking, thinking about what you're going to try tomorrow? I, that is such a great question. I love talking about that. Um, you know, it's the the chocolate sometimes kind of, or this sounds weird, but it kind of like tells me what it could be. And I like to take something that is already there and um, expand on it. So the Madagascar chocolate is naturally fruity and kind of citrus. And so it seemed like, candying some orange peel was a natural thing to do. And I love crunch in my chocolate. I love that flavor combo. And I I love a little crunch. So candy the orange peel um, so it's crunchy and and put that in. But yeah, that's a great that's a great question, Peter. Sometimes it's something that I already taste in the chocolate that I just want to amplify a little bit. Interesting. But but you've got some others. Can we we slightly on conventional places that you're getting your chocolate from, including the Dominican Republic and and Ecuador, Mm -hmm. Ecuador not not being particularly tropical? Mm. No, but they do have a lot of chocolate, rabbit. They do have a lot of chocolate, but they they ate it while they were standing on top of mounds, didn't they? Well, they, it's true. They, um, you know, where chocolate comes from, the people who are eating it were consuming it in a lot different ways than we are, you know, mostly as a drink. Um, and, of course, they were using it as currency as well and probably a whole a lot of other things. But they weren't consuming it like we are with, you know, tons of sugar in it. That's for sure. Right. I remember, but I can't remember the date. I remember what the difference it, it made when they um, when the price fell and and more people had access to chocolate in Europe. Mm. Um, then mm-hmm. all of a sudden it, it had a different market. It wasn't the elite. And up to that time, right. it had been elite, 
Um, but mm-hmm. the, using it in bars meant that you could have a broader um, uh, market mm-hmm. as opposed to the drinking chocolate. Which, right. I mean, yeah. But then we should, we should it's an interesting history. I mean, whole economies have run on chocolate. Yeah, it's We're fascinating. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And the majority of us, you know, chocolate consumers are unaware of that of that history. So um, there's there's just a lot of depth to it. It is interesting. Yeah, if, you, if you're interested in reading background information, we 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 interviewed a lady whose last name was Cadbury. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she, she wrote a book called The Chocolate Wars. W A R S. And I just I yeah. just thought you might find it. I think I've heard of that name. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. But yeah. Sounds familiar. Did, did you notice most of, the, most of these, I never got an answer to this, most of the chocolate makers in England um, were um, Quakers. Quakers. Did you know that? Really? I did not. Yeah. And and we're in, in um, southwestern Pennsylvania, and most okay. of the chocolate makers in um, in, in our area and there were tons of them. Um, mm-hmm. uh, um, most of them were Greek. Really? We we, we yes. Can't, and and can't the Greeks, I've that. asked everybody, nobody knows why. Yeah, we can't explain <laughs> that one either. The connection to the Quakers isn't, is, isn't, very, isn't very clear. But there, there was, right. I think, a, a sizable concentration of those particular kinds of Christians mm-hmm. in and around the port city of of Bristol, which, which I had never heard had, that. Which had, which had, which has a rather seamy side of it because it was also the the heart of the English trade in Slaves. chocolate, yeah, enabled by slavery. But we we won't spend too much time on that one. <laughs> but, but but you but you discovered a use for a product grown in Oregon, which is where you live. Tell us about that. That's right. Right. So you're talking about the hazelnuts. I am. (laughs) Yes. Uh, um, Hazelnuts, I think Oregon is like the biggest grower of hazelnuts, at least in the United States. It's big. Um, It's big, that's for sure. Yes. I don't know if it's world or if Italy takes the prize for that, but... Um, hazelnuts are really big here, and you find oh, yeah, them in like. everything. And it just really seemed unnatural uh, that I needed to have a bar with hazelnuts. And I remember the first time I ever had that combination. It was when I went to Italy, and um, I think they're called the little bocce, the little balls with the um, oh yeah, bocce. The hazelnut, oh my gosh, so addictive. And so um, I knew that I wanted to do that and just quintessential Oregon. Um, and I, I love looking at ways that I can use uh, local products. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, um, when you took this um, training uh, in yeah. entrepreneurship, I mean, um, there was probably a lot of emphasis on marketing. Uh, so mm-hmm. you probably know... Um, you're in a, a niche with so much competition. I mean, 
how did you yeah. figure out what your market is and what is it? How do you right. differentiate your product? Right. That's a great question, Anne. So uh, one of the things, like when I would kind of feel overwhelmed and like, do I belong here? How do I compete? I just told myself that there is room for all of us at this table and um, also that there are many ways of doing this. And so I was, uh, you know, just going to kind of do what felt right to me and what felt genuine to me. Um, And that was, you know, I wanted to focus on the farmers. I wanted to, you know, have packaging that would be evocative of the places where um, cacao comes from. I wanted to have some... Uh, varying flavor profiles so people could learn that chocolate is really complex. It's not one yeah, flavor. And so I wasn't so worried about what other people were doing, but just what I wanted to do with it. And I just figured there's room for all of us and there, there will be a market uh, for all of us. And, you know, I think that um, my market is people who love good food. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, there are people who like good wine. They like good beer. You know, they also, they like that connection um, with the origins of the food, um, you know, knowing where it comes from and who's making it. And that, you know, that it's doing some good. Right. Well, a lot of these um, chocolatiers build that into their their um, careers and their companies. Um, I just mm-hmm. noted that um, Sean Askenosi just got some kind of a, a Hall of Fame award from the Specialty mm-hmm. Food Association. I mean, he is amazing <laughs> right. as a person. Right. The things he does mm-hmm. with Chocolate University and so on, and um, setting up all those. Um, the students in these villages and working with the chocolate growers and farmers. I mean, yeah, he does fabulous. amazing work. Oh, yeah. Yes. And his product. I aspire is, to the, do that, yeah. Oh, please. He's, he's just unreal. He's so, mm-hmm. We interviewed him early on, and his daughter's oh, now great. moved in and taken. Hmm? Oh, years That's ago, great. we interviewed yeah. him, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but his daughter has taken over a big role, and he says one of his great pleasures now is working with his daughter, which I thought was very typical Sean Askinosi. <laughs> <He's> just, <laughs> just absolutely amazing. But, um, and, you know, again, uh, chocolatiers are interesting because a lot of them have transitioned from totally, totally unrelated fields. Like he was mm-hmm. a criminal lawyer. Yeah, a, a criminal trial lawyer on top of everything else. I think he did say yeah, once that's he got unusual. tired. Of, yeah, he, mm-hmm. I think he got tired of death threats. I think was one of the things. Yeah, I can understand that. Yeah, it's yeah, interesting. Um, with with chocolate makers, you know, when I first started out, I was thinking, do I want to do chocolatier or chocolate maker? And I definitely was drawn more toward chocolate maker because I really wanted the connection, you know, with the the farmers, and it just felt like there was more opportunity for that. But when I looked around initially at who was doing chocolate makers, it looked like it was a lot of men and a lot of guys who came from a tech oh, yeah. background 
who were, you know, figuring out ways to make their own machines to do these things. And I was kind of intimidated by that because I was like, oh, machines, I can't do that. But, you know, they're also very generous and they have shared what they do and, um, you know, have kind of paved a way for a lot of us. Um, but, it, but it is interesting that they're, they're yeah, there's one like there's a lot of people. There's one mm-hmm. chocolate maker that uses all antique equipment, chocolate making mm-hmm. equipment. Mm-hmm. I can't remember mm-hmm. who it is. Um, oh, wow. It's not child. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, apparently there's been a great deal of evolution in the equipment in chocolate making. Well, you know, and in the beginning of the whole craft chocolate movement, there wasn't really machinery to produce at this scale. It was more the industrial. So we needed those really creative and technologically savvy people to, you know, figure these things out. Um, Uh My bean roaster is an antique coffee roaster, drum roaster. I think it's like 1904. It's like the A.J. Deere Royal Roasters. I think that they were built in upstate New York. And um, people still use them for coffee, you know, craft uh, makers, and they work well for cocoa beans. And it's a very beautiful-looking machine. Yeah, the machines used to be, actually. A lot of those take machines are beautiful objects. True. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, ornate decorations and, yeah. Well, now, uh, where do you go from here? Uh, and be- I want to ask you also, um, since we've been talking about your chocolate, um, how how do we get it if somebody wants it? Where do they find it? Yeah. Well, my website is mokuchocolate.com, and I have an online store. I also sell gift sets there. Um, I'm mostly on the West Coast right now. I'm in a store in New York, but so probably, you know, right now online is the best way to get it at mokuchocolate.com. Um, I will be coming out to the Fancy Food Show in New York. Yes. And so, you know, Have you been before? No, I have not. And I'm actually going with, um, with Sarah Masoni, who we were talking about earlier. (laughs) But the Food Innovation Center. Sarah McCauley from the Food Innovation Center. Yeah, yeah. She takes a group of um, Oh, she told us about that, that she was taking a group. So I I told her to be prepared. I mean, it is strenuous for three days. (laughs) We used to go in person every time. Take Take your most comfortable shoes. Whatever you do. Yeah, take, I know. Take. But after three days, I'm not sure what you can possibly wear that would be comfortable you for that. The, yeah, you I'm sit on the ground and cry. You know, the, the, <laughs> right. The real, the real um, risk factors involved with this is if, you, if you're not controlled and if you go from mm-hmm. booth to booth and, right. and sample everything, you're having oh. can. Ten sardines at one booth and chocolate in the next <laughs> booth. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, and, and then you some kind of um, yeah, and some kind of uh, health food at the next booth. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, you'll funny. enjoy yeah, it. If I, this is your first ch- mm, go with that. You're gonna have a bowl. It's great. I'm then the people all are wonderful. Behind my booth, 
the whole time, so you know I won't be out sampling. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it and looking forward to seeing, you know, what what happens um, from from the show and just in general. So you ask, like, you know, what's next? And honestly, I am um, just pursuing what comes my way and and seeing. I can't say that there's a certain size I want to be. I just want to make a really good chocolate um, and take advantage of the opportunities that come my way. Well, you'll be, you're going to have to take a break away and just walk around a little bit to see. I mean, you've never known <laughs> that there are so many people, so many different kinds of cheeses in the universe. Until we see this oh, show. my goodness. Yes. <laughs> and, yeah, and, I'm, oh, I'm sure so I will things. have to. And of course, the um, the the uh, startup section is very interesting too. I think that would be mm-hmm. interesting to you. And um, yeah, so I mean, it's hard fitting it all in. I mean, it, it's bigger every year. I mean, we, we covered oh, it for goodness. years and years and years in person, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. it's it's really difficult to, to cover everything. It's just so much. So, are you going but, this year? No, we're not going to go this year. No. Mm-hmm. It was sort of up in the air, and then we decided we just not, it's just not a good year for us to go. So, mm-hmm. anyhow, um, well, you have a good time there, and um, keep keep up the good work. And, and I'm, I'm so glad we got to meet and chat. And um, so we'll, we'll yeah, let you know when it's going to air, and it'll it'll air first of all, or you could do it on our website. But it, you can get it through any podcast provider. So, okay, okay. Great. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Maureen. Oh no, I call you Mo. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Either is fine. I feel like we're friends now. You can call me Mo. Okay. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you, Bull. Thank Take you. Care. And have fun. Bye-bye. Have fun. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye.